Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Our passage this morning, our passage in Philippians 2 is about a deep Christian joy. That is to be, the, the, the kind of joy there is to be had in a life of obedience and of a pursuit in holiness. And it, it, it's kind of God's providence that we're talking about this uh, in, on, on sort of like a membership Sunday when we're installing new members because uh, like, like growing in holiness is something that we can't do without each other. We need each other for that. We need each other's prayers. We need each other's encouragements. That's why Paul's encouraging the churches. They need his encouragement to grow in, in holiness. Now, to be clear, that exact word holiness is not exactly found in our text, but the whole concept of it is. How many guys know what it means to be holy, what that word means? To be holy means to be what? To, to be set apart. To be set apart for God and for his purposes. Right? Kind of like we just talked about a few minutes ago. It's about spiritual maturity and growth. And so with that in mind, I want you to kind of have these, this, this, this question in the back of your mind today as, as we're going through this text. I, I want you to be asking yourself, where am I at in my spiritual growth? Where am I at in my spiritual growth? Is my life in Christ marked by growing in grace, growing in, in holiness? We, 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 talked, uh, we, we, we talked last week about how, uh, you know, that word Christian is actually hardly used in the New Testament to describe those who are followers of Jesus. But so many times, dozens and dozens of times, the phrase in Christ is used to describe those who are followers of Jesus. And so maybe like, like, like have this question in the back of your mind, like my life right now, how, like what my spiritual growth, does, does, it, does it look like, does it display what it means to be in Christ? Would the people around me, would they look at my life and, 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 and say, this is a person who's in Christ. This is what Paul encourages us to walk in, spiritual growth and holiness. And so this morning we're going to look at three points, holy obedience, and then a holy witness that we have to others. And lastly, a holy service that is modeled in Paul. And so first, we're going to look at the holy obedience that he encourages, exhorts this church in. Uh, now, before we look at our first verse, I want you guys to remember that we are actually stepping into a flow of thought for Paul, right? We're talking right now about Philippians 2 verse 12. But you got to remember that when the church in Philippi received this letter from Paul, they're reading this out loud, right? 
They didn't get this emailed in a newsletter. It wasn't up on a screen for them in the gathering, right? They didn't pass out bulletins when they walked through the door. No, this would be read out loud, this letter from Paul. If you remember from last week, last week we saw that Paul Paul wrote and, and cited sort of this epic poem about how Jesus is the Lord creator of all. And so this, this hymn, this poem would have been read out loud in front of this congregation that Jesus is the Lord, that he is God in human flesh, the one who will make every knee bow in heaven and on earth. That's where we ended last week on verse 11. And so you can almost hear after that, that, that long, beautiful hymn, poem, there'd be almost like this dramatic pause, this selah, where people are just like, man... That hits me. That humbles me. And you can almost hear that pause between verse 11 and verse 12. And so now, moving into verse 12, after Paul just extolled, talked about how great Jesus is as, as the God and Savior of all, Paul then says in verse 12, Therefore, He uses that word therefore because he's saying because of the reality that Jesus is Lord. And then he gives them a command. He says, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, he's saying, look, because Jesus is Lord, what we talked about last week, Because he's Lord, the mighty one, worthy of all worship and praise, the one through before whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, because he's that Lord, live now, verse 12, my beloved, live a life of obedience. Actually live as though he's Lord in every area of your life. Don't give him one area of your life but not another. Don't give him your Sunday mornings and not your Friday night. Don't give him your personal life, but not your your social life. Or don't give him your public life, but not your private prayer life. In all that you are and in all that you do, pursue a life of obedience, walking in his ways, not in a way to earn grace, because you can't earn grace. That's kind of the point of it. But as a response to his grace because of what he's done and who he is. Now, there's a lot in this one verse, but I want you to notice first, he calls them my beloved. My beloved. Now, he hardly refers to um, the churches that he writes to with this sort of phrase. And that's a special endearing term that he gives to this church. You see, normally he uses languages like brothers and sisters, which he actually did in, in Philippians 1 with towards them. But here, he calls them my beloved because he has a special kind of love for these people. He's like saying, look, I don't just love you guys as family. I actually like you, right? I actually like hanging out with you. I, I yearn for you. You're my beloved. And so this isn't... This command isn't like some distant authoritarian like uh, pastor beating them over the head with a calloused and detached command to obey. This is a loving plea from Paul to a church that he considers his people, his crew. 
his tribe, his beloved. There's a deep bond here in that, those words between Paul and the Philippians. And for Paul, obedience isn't, isn't about, uh, it, 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 it's not about like when, when, when you have to follow the, the speed limit, right? Like sometimes when we, when we hear commands of obedience in, 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 in the scriptures, we, we think of like, okay, it's kind of like when you're on a road and you see the speed limit and it's like, oh, you got to obey the speed limit, right? That's what the sign says, right? No, the way that the Bible talks about obedience, it's less like a speed limit sign and more like just the road that you're on. The Bible says Jesus is the way, the road, the way, the truth, and the life. And so obedience is just walking in the ways of Jesus. And disobedience isn't about like disobeying a speed limit sign. It's like veering off the road altogether into a ditch. And so Paul says, my beloved... And then he commands him. Look what he says. He says, my beloved, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this here is a parental metaphor, right? Paul is kind of like their spiritual father in the faith. He was there when this church got started. He planted this church. And this, when he's writing this letter, this is about 10 years later. And he's writing to them this letter of love and partnership. In chapter 1, he says, I thank my God every time I think about you for your partnership in the gospel. And he's writing to encourage them in their joy and growth in the faith because he loves them. And so when he says... Look, you always obeyed the Lord when I was with you, and even more so now. I mean, man, that's like every parent's dream, right? I've got little kids right now, but, but this is my, my dream for my kids, you know? Like every parent's dream is that your kids will, when they're in your home, that they'll respect the godly path and vision that you've laid out for their lives, that they would trust that you have their best interest in mind, that you want to see them thrive and flourish in the Lord. And the goal is that one day, when they do leave the home, when they do leave the nest to go start a life of their own, which for my sons might be when they're like 18, for my princess, probably when she's like 35. And hopefully, everyone still stays on the straight and narrow once they've left the house, right? And when you're no longer there to sort of kind of enforce the rules. That's the kind of relationship that Paul has with this church. And what Paul's getting at is he says, when I was with you, you obeyed the scriptures that I taught you, the gospel of grace, the scriptures that I taught you, you lived in light of them. You, you, you obeyed, you, you, Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life for you. And he says, and now that I'm not even in the picture, now that I'm writing to you from prison, you still obey. Well done, faithful followers of Jesus. I love you guys for that. I love you guys for that. I mean, that's my, that's my heart for, for this church is that we would walk in the ways of Jesus together. We would walk in the ways of Jesus together no matter like what season of life that our church is in, that, 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 that if we received a letter from, from Paul like this, man, what would he say? Would he say, man, I, I love how you guys obeyed the scriptures when I, that I taught you when I was with you, and you even do it even more so now that I'm gone. It's a mark of spiritual maturity. I want you to look at how he continues the command. 
He says, work out now your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, your translation might say, continue to work out your salvation. Continue to work out your translation. That's because the Greek word there for work out your salvation is what's called a present progressive, which means you, 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 you're working out your salvation and you don't stop. You just keep growing. You keep on continuing to work out your salvation. Can't stop, won't stop. It's an ongoing obedience. It's what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. You see, sometimes, sometimes we equate spiritual growth. When we think of what spiritual growth looks like, we equate that with like this moment that we have sort of like this, this glamorous, ecstatic, mountaintop spiritual experience, right? Like that conference that you went on, that retreat that you went on, that one sermon that really impacted you, that song that when we sing it, it just moves you. But this working out your salvation, this present progressive working out your salvation that Paul's talking about is less about that and more just about the daily ongoing effort of obedience, I'm not diminishing those other things. Those other things are important, and they're meaningful to us, right? But what Paul's saying here is that where real growth and holiness happens, where it really matters is in the trenches of everyday life, the small, everyday, daily decisions that we make. And man, that, that, that challenges our cultural kind of sensitivities because we live in like the most instant society of history right we live in the time of microwaves and keurigs and google and apple pay and amazon prime where you can get the things that you want and the information you want just like that in an instant but paul says the life of growing in christ the life of maturity is a slow process It's easy to show a spark of enthusiasm at like a one-time event, but it's something else to live faithfully when no one else is around and no one else cares, just the daily decisions that you make in life every hour of the day. Here's how Tim Keller puts it. He describes it as a walk, and he says, a walk is, is day in and day out praying. Day in and day out, Bible and Psalms reading. Day in and day out, obeying. Talking to Christian friends, going to corporate worship like we're doing right now. Committing yourself to and fully participating in the life of a church. It is rhythmic and on and on and on and on. It's not glamorous, it's just ordinary. He says to walk with God is a metaphor that symbolizes slow and steady progress. And so when you hear the question, how's your walk with God going? How's your walk with Christ? Don't think about those glamorous kind of like spectacular moments that come and go. I want you to think of like the daily slog, plotting faithfully. Now, I need you to notice that Paul says, work out your salvation. That's important, all right? He says, work out your salvation. He says, he doesn't say, work for your salvation, right? 
Like he's not saying you have to earn your salvation by works, by obeying. Christ has done all the work. That's why he said it is finished on the cross. What he is saying, what Paul is saying, is he's saying live out that salvation that you've already received. Live that out. Live in light of the salvation that has already transformed you. And he says do this with fear and trembling. Man, that's like one of those verses, one of those phrases where when, when, when you read it, you're like, man, I, I hope that doesn't, that doesn't mean what it, what it sounds like, what it looks like. But, you know, when, when the Bible says work out your salvation with fear and trembling, when you look, kind of study it and look into the original language, what, what, what he means is work out your salvation with fear and trembling. <laughs> In other words... It's okay to have this healthy amount of sort of godly fear. I mean, the Old Testament says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the kind of fear that makes you cower and run from God. Right? It's not that kind of fear, but it's the kind that makes you stand in awe and fall on your face. You can never have too big a view of God. You can never have a view of God that is too big. I mean, when you, when, you, when you read the I mean, Old Testament, New Testament, you see a God that is big, that makes people stand in awe, fall on their faces. Sometimes we kind of treat it like, man, the God of the Old Testament is like the big, awesome, holy God, and the God of the New Testament kind of like mellowed out after he had a kid, right? But no, when we see in Isaiah 6, in Isaiah 6, when the prophet Isaiah enters this, this, this room and he sees this vision of God. And God is so bright and so huge. And these creatures are flying around him singing praises to his name. And, and the only thing that Isaiah can think to do is to fall on his face and to say, I'm undone. Who am I before a God like this? I'm an unclean person before a God like this. But then in Revelation 1, the end of the New Testament, we see the risen Lord Jesus appear to, to John, the disciple, the disciple that he called his beloved, one of his closest friends and companions. And when John on the island of Patmos sees this vision of the risen, resurrected Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, he faints. Same response. New Testament. Jesus, the man that he walked alongside, ate with, and learned from, the risen Jesus, he fainted before at the sheer sight of him. You see... When the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it's this awareness that God is God and you are not. He sits on the throne and you do not. One day, the Bible says that you'll have to stand before him and give an account for your life. And coming right after Philippians 2, 9 through 11, where Paul was gushing about how Jesus will be ex is, is exalted now, how he's exalted, given the name above every name. 
Right after that passage, this makes perfect sense for Paul to say. He's saying that that Jesus is the one every creature will worship, every knee will bow before, the great King of kings, the great Lord of lords, the one who makes the angels sing hallelujah, the one who makes the demons tremble in fear. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised one, our great God and Savior in the light of him. In light of who he is, work out your salvation that you received by his grace. The one who didn't account quality with God a thing to be grasped, but, but, but gave it up to live and die for you. The mighty Savior. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling before him. And then Paul gives a word of comfort in verse 13 when he says for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure you know what will keep you from, from feeling burnt out and sort of giving up in the Christian life and the Christian walk it's the fact that God is at work in you as you as you seek to follow him. This echoes something we said in chapter 1 when, when, when Paul said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus. You see what he's saying? Paul's saying, look, that, that same divine creative power that made the universe is at work in you. His, his power is pulsing in your, in your veins. You're not alone in this. Tap into that. Tap into that. It is work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you. It's kind of this paradox that shows that, man, what, what we do is God's sovereignly at work in us, but at the same time, like, we're still responsible to pursue him. We're still responsible. We still got to make that effort. That doesn't make him any less sovereign. Doesn't make him any less powerful to work in and through you. It's this dance of obedience with us and the Spirit. God is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the holy obedience that Paul exhorts them in. Next, I want you to see now how he, he talks about a holy witness that they have. He says, look, if you, if you are living obedient in, in, in this kind of way, if you're, if you're displaying a life of holy obedience, then you'll also have a holy witness before the world. So what does it look like to work out your salvation with fear and trembling in, in real time? I mean, the next few verses, Paul, Paul gives us this specific example. Read in verse 14. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish and in the midst or, or without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see, his, this is his, his first exhortation that he gives for a while uh, 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 in, in the book of Philippians. This is how he expects us to work out our, our salvation. He says, do all things without grumbling. 
So Paul just said, hey, look, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. Oh, just as you obeyed when I was with you, obey and you're obeying all the much more now. Continue in that. Work out your salvation. And then he says, one example of that is do all things without grumbling. Now that's kind of that's kind of odd, right? Like of all things, why does he why, why grumbling? Why talk about grumbling? Like you kind of expect him to say, "Work out your salvation with fear and trembling." So so pray every day, right? Give to the poor, read your Bible. But instead, the first example he thinks of is he says he starts with grumbling. Disputing, complaining. Now, why? 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 Why does he focus on that first? Now, you understand that it, when when you're reading this in the Church of Philippi, uh, and if you had any knowledge of the Old Testament, you would recognize that one of the big sins of God's Old Testament people, the nation of Israel, is that they were constantly grumbling. They were constantly disputing. And over and over and over again, God, is, God, God writes to them and speaks to them through a prophet and says, man, do you remember what I saved you from? Do you remember what I delivered you from when you were in slavery in Egypt for generations? Do you remember what, what, what you went through, how I delivered you from that? And yet instead of being marked by gratitude as God's people, they're just grumbling. You see, of all the big sins of Israel, grumbling was at the top of that list. In the Old Testament, we read that the Passover lamb was sacrificed. The Red Sea was split. They were brought out from slavery and death. And in all God's kindness and in the face of all God's gracious provision, because they haven't reached the promised land on their own terms, they grumble. And they complain. So now fast forward now to the first century. The first century when Paul's writing this letter to the Philippians. And the people in this church, they've been brought out from spiritual slavery, redeemed from spiritual slavery and death. Jesus is the new and greater Passover lamb who was sacrificed in their place. And Paul knows that there's a temptation now, even for this church that he loves, his beloved. Paul knows that there's a temptation in all of us who receive salvation to say, no, God, not, not your way of doing things, but mine. Not your timing, but mine. Not your definition of holiness, but, 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 but mine. And so when Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, He's not being arbitrary. He's not like pulling some random idea out of the air. And he's, he, he's saying, look, I've seen this episode before. I've seen how this played out before. I've read the Old Testament. I've, 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 I've seen the reruns, right? Don't let it go the same way that it did for Israel where you're marked by, instead of gratitude, just grumbling and disputing. And I want you to notice, he says, do, do all things without grumbling. That's a long way to say just don't grumble, right? But Paul's emphasizing here the doing of all things without grumbling because it's really easy for us to find things to grumble about, isn't it? He's saying, 
Look, in all that you do, in all that you are, in whatever season of life that you're in, whether you're single, engaged, married, in whatever relationships you have with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your co-workers, whatever job you have, whatever ministry you serve in, whatever's going on in your neighborhood or in your life, do all things without grumbling. All the things without grumbling. And that word grumbling, what it means is it's like whispering complaints, murmuring in secret, making negative comments behind somebody's back, the kind of grumbling that promotes tearing down others rather than building them up. Grumbling is when you, 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 you talk bad about your boss, to, boss behind his back to, to your coworkers. Grumbling is when you roll your eye at your spouse or, or that friend. Grumbling is when you whisper or murmur, bad-mouthing another person uh, in, in secret when they're not around rather than confronting them on your own. You see, Paul says do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, to be clear, he's not saying don't raise your voice when, when people are, 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 are doing things that, that are hurtful to you. He's not saying don't stand up against injustices. What he's talking about is, 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 is this grumbling that just gnaws at your soul, that just consumes you. And he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And disputing is when you're kind of like this picture where you're full on arguing, being passive aggressive, pushing buttons to take the other person off. Like, I'm guilty of this all the time. It's hard for me to not grumble. It's hard for me to not be an argumentative or a disputing person in certain contexts. And Paul says, look, have none of that. Have none of that. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Have none of that. Flee that. Without a hint of that. I think of Jesus when he's preaching in his hometown in the Gospel of Luke. And it says that all spoke well of him as he taught them and he, he, he had community with them. It says that all the people in the town spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Can that be said about you? The gracious words that come out of your mouth makes people marvel? Or Ephesians 4, when Paul's writing a letter to another church, the one in Ephesus, and he tells them... Let no corrupting talk. How much corrupting talk? No corrupting talk. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Can that be said about you? And to be clear... Paul's not encouraging you to be like fake and say these like kind of high flowery Christian language, right? Where you're like, hey, hey, hi, hi de ho, blessed neighbor. Praise be, right? <laughs> the opposite of grumbling is not counterfeit niceness. The opposite of gr- grumbling we see in the Old Testament is gratitude to God. That's the opposite of grumbling. It's gratitude. 
That's what Israel's problem was in the wilderness. Instead of having constant posture of gratitude to God for saving them from captivity, their history is marked with these ebbs and flows of grumbling. I want you to continue now in verse 15 and to see the kind of witness that that a a, a grumble-free and a dispute-free witness gives. In verse 15, he says... uh, in verse 15, he says, you know, do, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Your translation, if you're reading like the NIV or the CSB, might say like, like stars in the world. You ever drive through like Kodo across the street at night? You ever drive through Kodo at night? Like, like I know some some of you live there, but you notice that they, they don't have any streetlights there, right? If you've ever driven through Kodo, you know that they don't have any streetlights. You know why? It's because they want to get rid of that light pollution. So when you look up at the sky, that you can actually still see the stars at night. You ever notice how when you're away from like streetlights like that, like you're out in the desert or you're driving out toward Mammoth and you look up at the sky when it's just lit, just pitch, pitch black and the stars just seem to shine brighter and to shout louder and you're like, man, I had no idea there were this many stars in the sky. How did they get there? But man, they've always been there. They've always been there. They just shine brighter against the black sky. And then you see like like every 10 minutes there's another shooting star. Like does this happen all the time? And Paul says, in the same way, you as disciples of Jesus are going to stick out like stars when you do all things without grumbling or disputing. You're going to stick out like stars, like bright lights in a crooked and twisted generation that desperately needs the resurrection hope that we have. Jesus, the light of the world. And you've got to love Paul's simplicity here. You see, most of us think that if we want to shine as lights or make a meaningful dent against the dark sky, then, then the darkness around us, then we need to kind of sort of climb up the ministry ladder, Right? Make a name for ourselves in ministry or start a nonprofit. You know what? Maybe you do. Nothing wrong with that. You can do a whole lot of good with those things. But Paul, he's thinking more ordinary. He's thinking, he goes bite sized for us. He keeps it real simple. He says, How about you just don't grumble? In all things, no grumbling, no disputing. Then you'll be like one of those 10,000 watt cannons in a dark world. You see, some church people think the best thing to come is to shake our fists and wag our fingers at the darkness, right? Oh, look at this darkness. Look at this crooked generation that we live. I'm going to shake my fist and wag my finger. I don't know where that gets us. The Bible doesn't seem to mention doing that. But you know what it does say? Don't grumble. Don't complain, and you will shine on. You know why? You know why you'll shine like a star in a dark sky? You know why you'll, you'll shine like a light in a, in a crooked, dark world? Why you'll stick out? It's because no one is thankful anymore. Everyone grumbles. 
Is he Twitter grumbling? Instagram grumbling? They're sitting at home grumbling? We even have church grumbling. <laughs> we grumble in the church. Now, I grumble when, when I'm feeling discouraged. So if you have a heart of gratitude, though, Paul says, if you have a heart of gratitude instead of a heart of grumbling, you will stick out like a sore thumb and shine like a star in a dark void. And then he continues now in verse 16. In verse 16, he continues about a certain way, a certain particular way that we got to shine. He says, verse 16, holding fast to the word of life the message of the gospel, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in, in vain or labor in vain. So Paul's saying, look, how do we shine? We hold fast to the word. He says, the word that I labored to teach you. I don't want that laboring to be in vain, he says. So what he's saying is if you want to you shine, you want to do all things without grumbling or without disputing, hold fast to the word of life. Look at the word. Read it. Read it. Study it. Write in it. Make notes. Work to cultivate a taste for it. You might say, man, I've tried, but I just don't have an appetite for the word. It's so hard to do. Like, I know it's hard. That's why the Christian, like we said earlier, it's not about one ecstatic, spectacular, emotional moment experience. It's the daily decisions that we make that are hard at first, but get easier and easier and easier. Like a new gym membership. It's hard at first, but you get used to it. You work to cultivate a taste for the word. I'm mean, praying over it, memorizing it, holding fast to the word of life. Is not, it's not just a head thing. Right? It's not just a head thing. It's not just an intellectual exercise studying the word. We go to God's word to encounter God himself. To speak to him and with him. To, to hear from him in a relationship. His word is where we hear his voice most clearly. His word. His word is where we experience his love most profoundly. His word is where we have our hearts softened and our affections awakened. It's not just a mental exercise. It's when we encounter the word, we're made new. Romans 12 calls it the renewing of our minds. It spills out into our lives and in our relationships. Lastly, number three, Paul tells them about a holy service. He talks about a special type of sacrificial service that he believes he's set apart for, holy, set apart for, that he encourages us and read about it in verse 17. He says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and, there's that word, rejoice with me. You got to love the way Paul just loves this church. He says, I'm willing to spend my life to serve you. I'm willing to lay it down on the altar to serve you. 
And the image he gives us for the heart of service that he, he has and that he hopes will have is, he says there in verse 17, the, the image that he gives us is, is that of an animal sacrifice. And since it's probably been a while since you've witnessed an animal sacrifice, <laughs> uh, let me tell you how that worked back then. <laughs> let me tell you how it worked back then. Like in first century Judaism, animal sacrifices to God, they, they were a vivid picture. They were a really vivid picture. Like everybody, regardless of their religion or their creed or whatever, like every, every person had some form of, of an animal sacrifice as, as, as a word picture to them about how much God meant to them. And in, and, and in first century Judaism, when you made a sacrifice, you would offer an animal on an altar. And then you would pour out fancy, nice wine on top of the sacrifice. And here Paul is saying, church in Philippi, he says, you are that, that animal. You've, 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 you've obeyed, and you, even, even more now that I'm not with you, like you're still obeying, you're seeking to honor God, you're living as a sacrifice to him. And he says, I'm the wine, I'm poured out for you. I've spent my life on you, investing into you, caring for you. I'm in chains now for the gospel because of the kind of work that I did with you as a metaphor to describe how, how, how he would be willing to shed his own blood for the growth of these people, he says, even if it means I gotta, I gotta pour myself out as an, as an offering. And together, he says, we're like a living sacrifice to God. You see, Paul is giving this, this vivid, graphic image to say that he is willing to give his life away literally. He's kind of already given his life away emotionally and spiritually. Like in some sense, he's already given his life away for them. But he's saying he's even willing to give it away literally for the sake of their holiness. For the sake of their growth in the gospel. Paul's in prison for the gospel, and rather than grumbling because he's in chains, he said, if I had a chance to give my life for you, I'll do it. I'm not done serving you. I'll do that. If it means your growth in the gospel. You see, their spiritual growth, it matters that much to him. The spiritual growth of the saints matters that much to Paul. What about us? What about you? Why are you doing this church thing? Why are you doing this, this Christian walk thing? Does your growth in the gospel matter to you? Do, do you care about your obedience? Do you have a healthy awe of the Lord? We saw in Isaiah and in John and Revelation 1. Is your commitment to Christ and his church casual and consumeristic, or is it marked by a love and service to God and to others? Is a family together? Find joy in your growth, Paul says. Find joy joy in your growth. He says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. There was someone else who wasn't just willing to, to pour out 
his life. He wasn't just willing to pour out his life as a drink offering for, for this church, but he actually did. Jesus is the one who lived a perfectly obedient life. A perfectly obedient life, perfectly pleasing God the Father. Living in our place so that he could be a holy sacrifice, a Passover lamb to stand in our place, to suffer and die for our, our sins. He lived perfectly in obedience because he knew that in all of our efforts, even by the grace of God, we'll never do it perfectly. We don't have to live in shame of that. We don't have to live in, in fear of whether or not we have our salvation in that because Jesus said it is finished. He lived and died in your place. And you don't have to work for your salvation now. You get to work from it. You get to work it out. He's also the one who didn't grumble a mumbling word. Even when he was being beaten, when he was being flogged, dragged to a cross, his words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. So why do we pursue holiness? Why do we make the difficult at times effort to walk in obedience in our day-to-day -day lives? Because he's worth it. He who did not count equality a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, coming in the likeness of men, the form of a servant, even to the point of death, death on a cross. And now God has highly exalted him, vindicated him, given him the name above all names, the Lord, the Savior of all. Why do we pursue holiness in Christ? Because he's worth it. And because he's at work in us. Rest in him. Follow him. Walk in his ways because he is the truth, the way, and the life. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.